welcome to episode number 375 of the Hunt Back Country podcast. Today, our guests are Chad and Matt from Night Force Optics. You may be aware of Night Force. They make high-end scopes for hunting and for military use. And for the longest time, I was personally aware of Night Force, but hadn't used any of their products. And after going through a handful of scope brands, I finally pulled the trigger, got a Night Force scope, and I've just been super impressed. I was curious to hear more about Night Force. I didn't know the whole backstory. I didn't know how much they were really in the hunting market because for the longest time, I thought of them just as kind of like a military-focused company. Um, I didn't think that they necessarily had scopes for my needs as a hunter. Um Personally, in my own research, I figured out that that wasn't the case. And in this conversation, I wanted to learn more about the backstory of Night Force Optics and then also answer your questions. So before this episode, we had reached out to our audience to get some questions and hear what they wanted to know from Night Force. And we dive into that today. So we talk about things like scope tracking, the balance of weight and ruggedness in a rifle scope, parallax adjustment, and a wide variety of topics as it relates to scopes in general, and then also talk a bit about a night force in particular. I hope that you guys enjoy this episode. As always, if you have any questions for us or have any questions for night force, let us know. We can answer those from our personal experience, Steve and I having used night force scopes, or if we get enough feedback and questions, we'll get the guys from Night Force back on the show to answer your questions directly. To submit those questions, just send an email to podcast at exomountgear.com or look for a link in the show description that says leave a message and you can use whatever device you're on currently to leave us an audio message with your question. As always, guys, we appreciate your feedback and thank you for supporting and sharing the show. It does go a long way if you just share the show with a friend. Tell them about it. Um, it would help us tremendously. Right now, let's get into this conversation with Chad and Mark from Night Force Optics. Well, Chad and Mark, welcome to the Hunts Back Country podcast. We're excited to chat with you guys today. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much for having us on. We're excited to be here. Yeah. If you can go ahead for each of you individually, just kind of give a quick introduction of who you are and kind of what your role is with Night Force. Sure. Um, my name is Chad Van Brunt. I'm the Director for Marketing and Product Management for Night Force. I've been here about three and a half years and uh, spent the rest of my career throughout the firearms industry in one shape or form, um, but super excited to be at, at Night Force and uh, it's been a really fun time since I got out here. And I'm Mark Cochran. I'm a materials manager for the supply chain manager here. Um, been with Night Force for almost 15 years now. So wow. also, a, also a backcountry hunter. So Very cool. Perfect. And you guys are up in Orofino, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Orofino, which uh, yeah. probably most listeners, even if even we find even people in Idaho don't know where Orofino is. So. <laughs> um, it's uh, it's a fairly small town. Uh, it's about three thousand people. Uh, about I guess five and a half hours north of uh, of you guys down in Boise. Yeah, 
you guys get after the steelhead there in the river? Uh, I don't do too much, but um, there there's a lot of people fishing right now. Um, yeah, I'm not really a steelhead fisherman. I don't have the patience for it, but <laughs> we, yeah, we get to watch it out our windows here uh, at the it, office. Three times but, in my life I've been to Orfino. I was fishing for steelhead. So yeah, it's supposed yeah. to be a great run this year. Yeah, yeah there's yeah, definitely up. Yeah, I live right next to one of the guide shops, and there's a lot of boats on the river today. Oh, nice. Yeah, Mark, what was your original role with Night Force since you've been there 15 years? Kind of like, how has that changed for you over the time? It's changed a lot. Um, I was hired in April of 2008. There's about 30 people. Uh, with the company at the time. So I was hired in the machine shop. Uh, there might've been four or five guys in the shop at the time. Um, basically a laborer type role. So uh, I was, you know, building turrets, sandblasting, running CNC machines. Um, and then it, that kind of morphed into a scheduling position for the shop um, and then to the shop manager position and then a couple of years later, uh, became the materials manager. So at that time it was growing really fast. It still is, but, um, there was a lot of opportunity coming into the door here at that time. Um, everybody kind of, uh, there might be 15 of those original people when I came left, but they've all taken on a lot of different roles than, than where they started. So it's, it's changed a lot. Yeah, that's cool. Can you share either of you uh, a bit about kind of the background or founding story of Night Force? Because until I started talking with some folks, actually pretty recently, I didn't, I, I still don't know the whole story, but like there's these ties to Australia and things like that, that I had no idea about. Night Force is um, a brand I've been aware of for many, many years and have used the products of for uh, several years now, but I don't actually understand the whole origin story of night force yeah so uh our founder and you know he's still our owner still very involved in the business is dr ray dennis and he's a he's actually a dentist by trade um but he was big time into hunting in australia um he hunted frequently at night uh hunting foxes was his main thing. And he actually sold fox pelts uh, for money. And so he was, a, you know, the origin story of Night Force is really night hunting with, you know, uh, lights or lamps as they call them in Australia. Um, and so our founder, uh, Ray, he, he actually started a lighting company called Light Force, which still exists today. Um, and he started making lights to do better at shooting foxes at night. And he wanted scopes to go along with them. So something with illumination, something with a large objective and something that was rugged enough to work in the harsh kind of Australian outback that he was hunting in and couldn't find what he wanted on the market. And being an entrepreneurial guy, he went out and found a vendor and had some made to his specifications. And that's where the first actually light force rifle scopes came from. Um, the company grew from there. Uh, so that was 92 was when that all started. So we've been around 31 years now. Um, 
but it started in 92. They started uh, moving into the U.S. Um, in the 90s and eventually built a facility in Orofino in the late 90s, around 98. And we've been growing in that same um, area since then. So really the background of, of Night Force is hunting, which I think a lot of people are surprised by. Um, since a lot of folks know us more from the military wins in that side of our business. Yeah, for sure. That's what, when I think of night force and became first aware of you guys, it was much more on the military and tactical side. Um, and then when that whole, like, I just heard a snippet of that story recently about that history. And I was like, it shocked me. I had no idea. That's pretty wild. You go from, you know, night hunting foxes in the Australian outback to, these scopes that are known to be incredibly rugged and like in the U S context, very much used heavily in the military and things like that. It's a pretty, pretty wild growth story and change of market. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. And I'm sure we'll talk about it quite a bit as we talk about, you know, scopes for hunting versus scopes for military, but really the DNA of night force is the same. I mean, we talk about rugged, reliable, repeatable. That was really the DNA of night force from the start you know, something that could withstand these harsh conditions, something that can be dialed to shoot at distance, you know, that core DNA has crossed over across a ton of different markets and use cases, but really that's the the foundation of Night Force and it's been very consistent. Cool. Mark, for you being with the company 15 years and you said yourself you are, that you are a hunter personally, do you feel like you've seen in those 15 years more hunters adopting night force scopes kind of over that time? Yeah. Um, and for me, um, I didn't really come into, you know, when I started working here, I wasn't really a long range shooter. Um, but like I said, a backcountry hunter, so I am not easy on gear. So when I picked up a night force and put it on my gun, it was, it was like an insurance policy. I could, I can, I didn't have to be easy on my stuff. I didn't have to watch, you know, <clears throat> what I was doing with it. If it fell off, if I leaned it against a tree, it fell off onto the ground or I took a spill. I could always trust that it was going to be on no matter where I was. So, and I think for kind of the community that I'm around in the backcountry, you know, the, the people that I'm around that do the backcountry type hunting, um, that's probably the biggest thing that stands out to them too. So it's just, the fact that they don't have to worry about that piece of their gear. It's just always going to perform. So Chad, you mentioned in there like rugged, reliable, repeatable that to me, I think of those specific words, like that's a tagline of night force, but I want to dive into like the product and understand why that's more than a tagline and what goes into night force scopes being all of those things and like kind of get pretty detailed as much as we can and at the same time not lose people but to me as a consumer scopes tend to be this this mystery a little bit right like you have a tube you have glass at either end and i think us as hunters and consumers know that there's a lot going on internally uh, but clearly we're not the ones designing manufacturing these things so i just feel like there's a lot of mystery of what's actually happening and then how changes can affect 
something like ruggedness and reliability and repeatability, et cetera. So um, a perfect example, like we, we reached out prior to this podcast to get some questions from listeners on what they wanted to hear. And um, one ties in perfect all this. And so this listener question said, why are night four scopes so reliable? Can you get into the details of the small things that make a big difference? So can we kind of start there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so optics are an interesting world. Um, it's uh, something I don't pretend to know 100% about. Uh, it's very complicated, the actual optical design portion. Um, but as far as making them reliable, as we look at our design, the processes that we developed through the years, um, the way that lenses are held is exceptionally important. So you've got these glass elements, right? And you've got the ones you see on the ends, but there's a bunch in between too. So the elements that allow you to focus your optic, the elements that allow you to change your magnification, those all, those all move. You know, if you have an adjustable parallax, there's a moving lens element to do that. If you have magnification on your scope, that's not fixed. So if you have a, a two to 10, there's an erector system inside with moving glass elements to allow that to happen. So when we talk about reliability, if those elements move or in the worst case, they are not held properly anymore, you're going to see issues, whether it's issues with the image quality or issues with the point of impact. So holding those lenses, the way that they're bedded into the holding mechanisms, um, that's important. And it's something that, you know, we've developed a process for on our own. Uh, the materials themselves that we use for bedding the elements, the glass elements, as well as the process to do it. So that's a big piece of it. Um, you also hear me talk about, well, they're being bedded into, you know, some sort of a holding mechanism. Well, somebody's doing that. An actual person is doing that. So the, the craftsmanship, attention to detail, that portion of it is extremely important. Um, the other piece that, you know, why are night force scopes so reliable? Because we don't send them out if they aren't. So the QC process is really important. Um, I think one thing that you see a lot in like night force videos, if uh, people that have come and seen us at SHOT Show or NRA Show, we've actually had this in our booth, but there's the impact stand. It's a, a big heavy metal stand with a little rubber pad on the top. And we whack the scopes on it, which freaks people out, um, kind of freaks people out. But that's what's happening to your night force optic before we put it in the box and send it to you. So we're measuring where the reticle is on a, a collimator, which is a, a machine that has a reference in it. So you have a reference reticle and you put the scopes reticle on top of it. You whack the scope on the impact stand and you look at it again. If something moved, that test finds it. And so when you get your scope, it's not an untested or an unproven optic at that point. It's something that's made it through what most people are very scared when they see. It's, uh, like a, it's kind of a barbaric method. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
when you guys say whack, like that's the proper word that I'm having seen this test, it's not a, a gentle tap, as you said, it's, it's pretty, it's kind of brutal, really. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, we hit the scopes harder than people think is appropriate. Um, you do this with every single scope, right? That goes like before it goes into the packaging. Yeah. So there's, uh, it, it's, it is part of our standard QC test. Um, okay. It's, so it's not, you're not just grabbing one out of a hundred that comes off the line. It's every single one. How much movement can, because there's like, so you, you mentioned it, the scope's like in a fixture, essentially you take it out, you do this impact test and you put it back in a fixture and make sure that everything's still where it needs to be. To what degree of movement can that, this process sense or what is like a quote unquote acceptable tolerance? If there is one, uh, there's definitely a tolerance. I don't think we've ever published it, um, but it's less than what you would notice. Is that a fair? Is that a fair answer? Yeah. So it's non-effectual to a user, essentially. Yeah, it's it, it's it's within the error that you're going to be able to, you know, see or dial out. Anything else, and on on kind of that topic of reliability um what about materials um and maybe this gets into even the scope tube the housing itself like i'm assuming that that's all part of yes the internal mechanisms are very sensitive they're moving we covered that but kind of the shell and everything else has to be a component of this kind of reliability and maybe that leads us to kind of that rugged aspect as well yeah i mean the tubes themselves um are fairly thick. It's not a place that night force cuts weight. Um, so it's, uh, you know, there's a weight budget, right? I mean, we, we can't have a, a 10 pound scope. Um, so we have to be somewhat reasonable with our, our weights. Uh, but we don't sacrifice that ruggedness in a thin walled tube. So it's partially to protect the optical elements inside, but it's also providing a more stable, you know, a more stable system as you go through the mounting process, as it gets bumped off of things, as you go through, you know, thermal shift, um, all of those things can affect the optic, but having a good stable shell to put all those optical elements in is really important. Speaking of weight, like camp on that for a minute, Steve and I are, you know, both backpack hunters and try to shave weight wherever we can. Um, and I think speaking for each of us individually, like we've, we've used a lighter scopes than night force scopes, um, and then try to use the lightest night force scope we can now, but tying that into even listener questions, one example that came through, and I'm not sure that there's an easy answer to this, but talk on this theme a little bit. The listener asked at what weight does it become improbable for a scope to become extremely reliable? Again, no hard and fast rule, I'm sure, of like, you can be reliable at X ounces, but not Y ounces. But can you kind of talk about that theme a little bit or maybe for Night Force, what you guys have tested and found of, hey, we can't build a scope lighter than this and still have it be rugged, reliable, repeatable? Yeah, so I think uh, it really depends a whole lot more on how you're taking the weight out of the scope than a minimum weight. So we have scopes. I mean, our NX8 one to eight is 
17 and a half ounces. I mean, it's a light scope. It may, may not be great for the hunter. It doesn't give you the magnification you want, but I mean, we can make a scope that's light. Um, but really, where do you take the weight out? And that's where, if you look at how different scopes within the market are constructed, you see different companies' philosophies. So looking at the what makes up the weight of the scope, the biggest item is glass. The glass itself is heavy. So if you trim the size of your big glass pieces, so like if you go from a 56 millimeter objective to a 32 millimeter objective, you're going to save quite a bit of weight, ounces of weight. You're trading things off in the ability to see things in low light, the inherent resolution of the system. You're trading things off. It's just what is most important to you as you build your whole hunting system from rifle to pack to scope choice to ring choice, suppressor, no suppressor. I mean, all of those things are in your total weight budget and it's where you want to trim the weight. For us on the optic side, you know, glass is one spot. Um, turrets are another one exposed turrets, uh, you know, quote unquote, tactical turrets that have a zero stop or, you know, our zero hold mechanism that keeps the turret in place. Those items add weight. So if they're not important to you, that's weight that can be trimmed. There's other things in the construction. So we've talked about ruggedness and how things are held and the thickness of the tube. But when you talk about being able to dial something and then shoot and it actually hit where you dialed. That's an area that has a big bearing on both performance and weight. So the materials that we use in our turrets are meant to last a really long time. You can dial 15 minutes on a turret and it's going to give you 15 minutes of elevation. If we swapped out those heavy long life repeatable components or materials to plastics or something along those lines that really aren't meant to be dialed over time, there's a lot of weight to be saved in that turret. But it's not weight that we feel is an appropriate trade-off for competitive shooters, certainly, but not even for hunters. If it's something you're going to dial, we, we expect that to dial to what we say it will dial. Have you guys felt like you've tried to tackle making the lightest scope possible that you're comfortable with, or do you just kind of always err on the, just keep things overbuilt and tough? I think we've, we have not tackled. Can we make the lightest scope possible? Yeah. Within um, night forces, you know, rugged, reliable, repeatable kind of guidelines. Yeah. I think there's more work for us to do there. That's, I mean, that's, you know, speaking as a product guy, um, there's more work for us to do there. And, and obviously this isn't the first conversation we've had about weight. It comes up all the time as we talk to consumers, particularly hunters. So it's an area for us, you know, as we expand the product line, as we look at improvements, I mean, that's part of the, that's part of the puzzle. Um, I don't think we'll ever build the lightest scope on the market, but I think there's ways that we can, you know, provide you guys that care about weight you know, something that's within an acceptable, you know, increase from the lightoscopes on the market. 
I see. I, I like on pack design. Like I'm pretty much feel like I'm as light as I can get these without sacrificing features performance, right? Like it's a, uh, or longevity. Like they're, uh, there's just nothing left to take away like, uh, without seriously sacrificing the, the end user's experience. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it's definitely a balancing act. I mean, all designs a trade-off. Yeah, absolutely. Going back a little bit to repeatability, we started to talk in there about tracking and dialing and, and keeping that repeatable. It's definitely something we wanted to talk about. One of the listener questions, for example, was why do night force scope so well and what keeps a scope from tracking well? And I think you mentioned in there, Chad, quite a bit about materials. Um, is there anything else? I'm, I'm sure there is, but anything else you can kind of share the, just on that theme to elaborate a little bit more specifically on the guys like myself who want a system that they will be dialing in different conditions and they want that to be repeatable? Yeah, I think the biggest thing, and I'm, I know it's not quite as exciting as like materials and design stuff, but the biggest thing that makes our scopes track well is that we don't let them leave the building if they don't track well. The, the actual standards for tracking are something that has been foundational for us from the beginning. And that's really, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a cop-out answer because, you know, we didn't build that reputation, you know, for no reason. Um, the reputation is because the scopes actually do track well in the field and it's because they track well in the factory. So if something does not track well, then we fix it before it goes out the door. Um, so to the second part of the question, what keeps the scope from tracking well, it can be machining errors in the actual turret itself. So if the turret's designed for a certain thread progression, uh, you know, if you dial it, you know, X rotation, you should get Y vertical movement of the lead screw that pushes on the erector and makes the, makes the um, point of aim move. So if that thread progression is wrong, that's obviously going to give you a tracking error. So the actual um, threading process is extremely important. Um, the other thing is if you have any sort of binding in the system, which can come from a bunch of different spots from the turret itself, from, you know, the uh, counter springs that are within the system or the actual pivot mechanism that is on the other side of the erector in the system. Uh, all of those things can lead to tracking issues. So there's a bunch in design, but really the, the difference between a scope that tracks well and doesn't track well is what's acceptable going out the door from the manufacturer. Is it safe to say that, like, are you the only company relatively in the market that's testing every single scope? Like how unique is that? I'm not actually sure. Um, I would assume, I mean, there's other companies that have scopes that track well. Uh, we're not the only ones that have done this well. Um, it's, it, it's important to hunters. It's extremely important to long range shooters. Um, so we're, we're certainly not the only company that, that works towards this. Um, but I think 
you know, what we, what we kind of are proud of is, you know, not just saying we track well, but having built that reputation over time from people that are doing it in the field. And, and back to the adjustments. So we, we manufacture, we have a long history of manufacturing the adjustments here. So it goes back to even the profile of the threads and they're all machined one-to-one. So we have guys who are trained on machining turrets just for the proper feel. And when every single one of the turrets comes, cause it's two mating parts that are, that are threaded together. You have a lead screw and, and like a turret base is what they call it. And our machinists themselves are trained in um, just that feel and, and how to inspect them properly. So even our turrets are, once they're assembled, go through a, a series of, of inspections. <clears throat> so, you know, we have very few failures, I would think, at the end of the line just because we, we would have caught it before we even get there. So it's quite the extensive process before we even get to the final inspection step. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was thinking about that earlier when you were, you know, we've talked about this final inspection and the testing and catching something that maybe isn't perfect. And in my head, I'm like, man, there's a, there's a lot there to have gotten this far and I don't know, like, what does that look like? Do you take the scope apart? Is it salvageable, et cetera? But I think as you were just saying, Mark, like there's a lot of checks along the way so that at that final testing phase, things things are already in a way proven, like component-wise. And now it's just we're proving the whole um, scope as a, as a system, even though individual components, it sounds like, have kind of been tested and gone through QC. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so many different variations, uh, the different turret styles, the thread progressions that Chad talked about, you know, that is unique to a certain model uh, and a certain, whether it's an MOA or a mill specific scope, they all have a different progression. And so they're all manufactured a little bit differently and, and go through their own individual checks before they get to, to the actual scope kit or to the floor. So. Let's dive into models a little bit. It, it, as I see it, probably, um, you know, in Night Force, there's different scope lines. Um, and then within those scope lines, there's, you know, different models of magnification and features, et cetera. I would assume that some of the scope lines most popular with hunters specifically would be like the SHV, the NXS, and the NX8. Um, Chad, I'd love to get like maybe just a high level look at those from for people who may not familiar with each of them. And then I'd love to kind of dive into maybe some of the how do you choose between them? And then Mark, have you weigh in like as a hunter, like what do you look for? Which ones do you use, et cetera? But um, Chad, if you can kind of start with those three lines and then maybe just again, high level brief, like, hey, here's kind of the the purpose of this line of scope. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start with the, the SHV. Um, SHV, it stands for Shooter, Hunter, Varminter. So, um, you know, it's got hunting in the name, so it must be, must be good for that. Um, <laughs> but the, that line was designed really to provide a little bit less feature set from Night Force um, to bring the weight down, but also to bring the price down. And so that's really been our entry level line or kind of the value line from Night Force. Um, so the SHV line, we have a three to 10, which is 
very applicable to hunting, even guys out in the East. Um, we have a four to 14 in first and second focal plane. So that's another kind of mid range hunting optic. And then the five to 20, uh, which is the most popular in the SHV line. So the five to 20, again, kind of hits that core magnification range that people want for hunting or, or kind of target shooting. Um, the NXS line is pretty old. Uh, it, it was an early two thousands, um, line. So, you know, having an optics line that's 20 years old is, is not real common in the industry these days. Um, but it's around because it's, it's trusted. We talked to a lot of guys at shows that have a ton of NXSs that they've bought over the years. So we've got, we used to have uh, a one to four, that's, that's now discontinued. We had a two and a half to 10 by 24 or two and a half to 10 by 32. Those are gone, um, but we still get requests for them now. Uh, the current line is a two and a half to 10 by 42, uh, three and a half to 15 by 50, and then a five and a half to um, 22 by 50 or 56 and an eight to 32. So there's a bunch of options in there. Um, those were... Pop, they've been popular for hunting. We had a lot of contracts with those scopes, military contracts in the kind of early 2000s, uh, that era of uh, warfare. Um, those scopes were really popular. Uh, kind of moving on from the NXS, we, we developed the NX8 line. The NX8 line was really, you know, knowing what we know of the NXS, what, what would we redesign for today? And so that was launched um, between 2018, 2019, and 2020. We launched all of those NX8 models. So there's a one to eight by 24, and then more appealing to the hunting crowd are the two and a half to 20 by 50, F1 and F2, and then the four to 32 by 50 in first and second focal plane. So Really, when we talk to guys that are hunting, most of the guys are buying NX8s at this point, um, with the 4 to 32 being the most popular. Um, and then to add one more, we didn't talk about it much, but the ATAC R line, that's our, our higher end line from the NX8. So the top line for Night Force is the ATAC R. Um, we have a bunch of models in there, 1 to 8, 4 to 16, 4 to 20, 525, and a 7 to 35. Uh, those are most known for kind of competitive shooting, military contracts, that side. But there's actually quite a few guys and even a lot of guys from the factory that will hunt with those ATAC R scopes, even up to a 7 to 35. So there's really a mix of what's... Um, popular from the hunting crowd, but really the NX8 is where we steer most people from the hunting aspect. That's certainly been my external observation as I see and know many hunters talking about night force scopes. That's usually at the top of the list for sure. Yeah. It's, I'm sure. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to ask Mark, like I'm sure that you've probably tried uh, many options. Can you kind of talk about for you personally, being from Idaho, being a backcountry hunter, um, maybe some of the setups that you run or what your primary setup is for a scope, Mark? Yeah. So I'm, I'm probably a little abnormal for a backcountry hunter. I was telling Chad 
yesterday that for a long period of time, I packed around a, a Remington PSS with a, with an NXS 2256 on it. I think the package weighed like 14 pounds or it was pushing the limits of being legal to even pack. Um, but I packed it for 10, 15 years in the backcountry. I mean, putting on 10 miles, 15 miles a day sometimes. <clears throat> and I didn't, I knew it was heavy, but I just liked the gun and it was kind of old trusty. So I, I didn't want to pick up anybody else's rifle because I didn't want to know what I was missing out on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just did it. Yeah. I just, I, I just pushed through it. Right. Um, but now I, I do have a lighter setup. I still shoot the NXS, uh, in a 2250 it's kind of to me i call it the the toyota pickup of the 90s it's just a reliable tough optic that i mean you could literally run it over with your truck you know drop it off a cliff and and it's still going to perform for you um we actually have an nxs that uh that travels around to shows and it's got a bullet hole through the through the eyepiece. And, um, I think it was a sniper that was on a mission, took a bullet through, through the, right through the body tube, through the eyepiece of that scope and finished his mission just by wrapping duct tape around it to make sure that dust and dirt didn't get in there. I think the only thing he couldn't do was change the power on it. It was set, but it was still on. The scope was not knocked off. That's crazy. So that's, I mean, for me, that ruggedness and is, is, you know, probably my most important, that's the most important feature to me, just knowing that I can put it through hell and it's still going to perform for me. Um, so the new NX-8s, they, they're a little more compact. Um, they do have some, basically just a handful of feature sets, obviously the bigger magnification, um, and they're, you know, a couple inches shorter than the NXSs. So Every one of these scopes will do the same things for you. Um, just little feature sets will set them apart. But that's the NXS is always the one that I go back to. Uh, it's the original one I had, and I just continue to use them. So I was all to say my like my quote unquote night four story is, uh, gosh, it would have been 2017 or 18. We um, Snowy Mountain Rifles built a six five Creedmoor, and I was like, ah, just build it tough and whatever. And so they put a four to fourteen SHV on it. And, uh, we, we, they came out, we shot, shot it, got it all dialed in. And then I'm still like, you know, I'm still just very much a bow hunter. Um, and so proceeded to like not shoot that gun for, I think a year and a half, but it traveled with us to trade show. Cause I took it to all the trade shows and stuff like that, that we'd go to. Um, and I specifically remember twice, one time really bad we had the back of my truck piled up with backpacks, you know, from going to the shows and the gun somehow, like somebody threw it up on top of that, not in a case or anything. And I got home to unload everything, open the door and the gun fell like all the way from, you know, the top of my truck. So six feet in the air, landed on concrete, bounced three or four times. I was like, Oh, that sucks. That's not going to be zeroed anymore. <laughs> you know, pulled it up, looked at it like, yeah, there's no big scratches, whatever. And there was another time it fell really bad. And then Mark, it was death hike 2020. Um, the yeah, bear. the bear hunt. Um, I was just busy with work and I was like, we were doing this kind of death hike slash bear hunt. And uh I hadn't shot the gun since it had fallen out of the truck. And I was like, I was like full on prepared, like, oh, I got an hour here before we 
you know, people start showing up, I'm going to sight in the gun and sure as shit, I shot a hundred yards and hit dead zero. And I was blown away. I was like, I couldn't believe, cause it had just been traveling for a year and a half, taking that bad fall out of the truck. Um, I was blown away by it. And then on that same hike, um, one of the requirements we had was we had a bunch of guys, everyone had to load up with like 80 pounds of rock and hike them 18 miles out of the Frank churches where we hiked into. And Tyler Boschma, one of our good buddies, he had his gun, uh, with a night force. I don't know what scope he had, um, strapped to it, but it was, um, it was a night force. I know that. And, uh, he had laid it down on rocks and then went to go get water. And with 80 pounds, it literally tipped over right onto the rocks. The scope was the first thing to hit to impact. And, uh, and he was same thing. Like I did when it fell out of the truck, like, Oh, there's no way that's going to be zeroed anymore. And, and, uh, he got home and shot it the next day and texted me. He's like, dude, this thing's still freaking held zero. Um, and, uh, so then last year I was, I built a super light Creamore and I had a Frank church sheep tag and, uh, um, I was just going through looking for lightweight scopes and, um, came across the NXS, the two and a half to 10 looking at like, Hey, I can get a night force at 20 ounces. You know, like this sounds awesome. Cause everything else I'm looking at is like 16 to 18 ounces. And it's like, I will gladly take this night force. And since then I, I zeroed that gun in last year, um, probably in July, August, and I have yet to touch it. It's traveled to Alaska multiple times, been in and out of the Frank church. Um, man, I just, I can't say enough good things about it. Like I've, I have yet to to have to touch a single thing on it. It's just held zero since the day I sighted it in. Sweet. How'd your, how'd your sheep hunt go? Uh, good. Uh, second trip in, um, the same guy, Tyler Boschman, I was just talking about with, he was in there helping me and I killed a, killed a nice ram on like day six. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, we ended up, it was a poke. We were 21 miles from the airstrip, had to pack that sucker out, took a couple of days. Um, but, uh, again, and like even something like that, like, pack out of you know the rifles just strapped to the side of the pack and setting it down a hundred times with you know had like an 80 something pound pack starting out um and just i've just never ever touched that scope it's just been absolutely bomb proof yeah i'm similar i'm i'm mainly or for a long time was just an archery hunter so yeah um my my guns all mounted up it may sit in the cabinet for a couple years and travel around do more traveling and moving than than shooting but when I do grab it to go sight it in or just shoot it, I, I almost hate saying sight it in because I know it's sighted in when I shoot it, but uh, you literally go and just shoot it to make sure every year I've never had to adjust it. It's, it's always on. So yeah, I'm, I just went and Mark's coming out here in a couple of days to go elk hunting. And I just went and shot the other day. I hadn't shot, I killed a doll sheep in Alaska back in August and, you know, nasty pack out and flying at home and went out and, I, I just have all the confidence in the world, but you, you know, to be an ethical hunter, you got to go just double check everything. And sure enough, it's, it's perfect. So that's um, awesome. Yeah. Just been, yeah, we can't say enough. And, and in that time frame, I have seen hunting with other buddies, you know, we, we go up to Alaska and guys got other scopes and we're going to pick on brands, but, um, if there's like four of us traveling, somebody's always got a site, uh, a, a scope that's out of alignment. It's, it happens mm-hmm. every single time. And they're, using the same case I'm using, um, you know, the, it's just same, same flight, flight everything. Yeah. Yeah, like, everything no, was the same. There's not like something they were subjected to that I wasn't. And it's just, I've seen it time and time again, where other scopes get out of zero. And, and again, it's not happened to me with the night force. So yeah, it's awesome have a- to have that, that confidence in something. Just, I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to think about it. I can just focus on the hunt and, and forget that, uh, that's, it's an issue that some people have. 
Yeah, I have a a six five that I set up for my kids. Um, have a two kids that hunt, and they've God, they've killed a lot of animals with that gun. Yeah, in the last uh, six or seven years, but you know they're clumsy, dropping it, everything. My son actually killed a bull Monday morning. It was opening day of season. <clears throat> um, drag drag those things through the brush, um, and it was it was a brutal pack too, but. The gun, the gun's along with you both ways, you know, so it yep. gets beat up and sandwiched between bloody meat and backpacks and everything else. And yeah. So awesome. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, as we're recording this, just got back from Southeast Alaska doing a goat hunt and <laughs> that terrain was unlike anything I've been in. And I can't tell you how many times I fell and I ended up not killing a goat till day nine, but never, you know, repeating all the same stuff never once it occurred to me like oh gosh this thing's been you know traveled to alaska and i checked a zero when i got there but then i've been beating this thing up in the mountains and fell on it multiple times for nine days like is it going to be good when this shot now comes together on the last day right so um it is just that peace of mind is worth a few dollars and honestly the few ounces because again like we've tried to chase lighter stuff in the past and just been disappointed by it. For like sure. an insurance policy. Yeah. Yeah. So going back to models real quick, um, one specific listener question that came through, and I'm sure we could answer this with a couple different suggestions, but this listener asked, what scope would you recommend for a lightweight rifle and a max shooting distance of 500 yards? So maybe Chad and Mark, like each of you kind of weigh in with maybe what your take would be on that. You want me to start? Yeah, you can start, Mark. <laughs> uh, so you'd mentioned the two and a half to ten by forty-two NXS. I would say that's a great option for max shooting distance of five hundred yards and being the one of the lighter optics that that we sell. So just as rugged, just as repeatable as anything else we offer. So that's what I would go with. Cool. Yeah, the only thing I'd add is uh, is what else are you carrying? Um, so if you're, if you're carrying, you know, a spotting scope or you're trying to see things further away, if you don't want to carry a spotting scope, you may be able to do that with a rifle scope as well. So you may want more magnification than you'd really want to shoot at 500 yards. Um, I mean, you may shoot at 10 power or 12 power at 500 yards or 14 power, but you might want 32 power to, you know, count points or look for something more specific at a longer distance. Um, so that may be another consideration that it's not just about shooting distance, but really what you want to see and whether you can get away with a higher power rifle scope and do away with maybe a spotting scope. But I will say on that, that 10 power, the resolution is so good that I've had it sitting next to other scopes on 14 or 15 power. And you would swear that our 10 power was at a higher magnification. Yeah. You just see, just you see more resolution of it. Yeah. My buddy Jason was texting me the other, like a month ago, asking about scopes. And I was like, dude, NXS two and a half to 10, like, trust me, it's a badass scope. It's perfect. And he was really hung up on the 10 power. And I did that. I was like, man, it's like, I feel completely confident to shoot deer size game out to 600 yards. Maybe I've held on set at 700 yards and that's starting to get a little far for the 10 X, but I, I certainly would take that shot. Um, well, personally, I won't shoot past 500, 550. Um, but I would feel like the scope is capable of shooting out to 700. And I was trying to explain to him. It's like the, the glass is so clear that 
it's it's not an issue at all. I mean, you're uh, maybe if you're just trying to hold on a, a one inch orange dot or something sighting in, it's a little different story. But when you're just holding center mass on an animal, it's it's completely adequate, if not in my mind preferred because you are you are backed out and you're going to be able to see your misses and, and stuff like that. Where if you're zoomed too tight in and, you know, recoil from the gun going off, uh, you're going to miss seeing the impact. Shooting that too high of a power is a pretty common um, issue mm-hmm. that we see training and working with different people on demos and stuff. Uh, it's as long as you can see it, it is to your advantage to not be on max power. You want to back the power down. Yeah. That, really um proved itself to me was it that was just last year steve the boy ended up shooting was it it was i think it was right over 500 yards if i remember right and i'm not i don't intend to be the long range guy that wasn't on purpose it was just it was a situation and it happened and i felt confident i took the shot but i did all like so i was getting set up and i was you know, setting my scope and obviously had to dial for that shot and was setting the zoom and just created the sight picture that I wanted at 500 yards without looking at what zoom I was on. And the scope had way more zoom capability, but to my, like, this is the sight picture I want. I ended up being at basically eight X for like a 500 yard shot, you know, on game. So to me, that really illustrated that wasn't intentional. I wasn't trying to set to max zoom. I wasn't trying to be at anything other than this is the site picture I want. And even at 500 yards, that was like eight X. And I was like, Oh wow. Yeah. You, for me anyway, like I really don't need more than the 10 X, um, in excess that I run now. Steve, what, a, um, one of the topics you wanted to chat a little bit about was parallax. Um, can you kind of dive into your thoughts and questions there? Yeah, I think I, that's one thing I don't think I have properly set up on my gun. Um, so I was hoping you guys could walk through it. I remember watching a night force video where you talked through setting parallax. Um, I found that I can just leave it on the infinity setting uh, and just shoot, whether I'm shooting hundred yards or 600 yards, it doesn't really affect anything, but I believe watching that video that there's something with my diopter setting that I probably need to go back and adjust. But again, every, everything just worked with that gun. So I have like, I don't want to touch anything. Yeah, absolutely. So let's, let's talk about parallax error first. Um, I was telling Mark, uh, I'm gonna have a hard time doing this without using my hands uh, since we're on audio. (laughs) It's a lot easier when you're, you got your hands, but um, so parallax error comes from your reticle focal plane. So where the reticles in focus and where the image is coming into the scope. So the focal plane of the image and the focal plane of the reticle are not on top of each other. So what that knob on the side of your scope does, the parallax knob, is it moves that image focal plane and allows you to put it on top of the reticle. So why does that matter? Um, It matters because when they're not on top of each other and your head's not in the middle of the optic, you're actually creating an angular error within the system. Um, so when does it matter? It matters when your eye's not centered. So if you have a perfectly centered eye placement in your optic, it doesn't matter. So that's one important caveat. Um, but as you're building a hasty position or, you know, you're a little stressed trying to get the shot, maybe you're not in that perfect 
position that you're used to shooting in, your eye might be slightly out of the center of the optical axis. And then if you do have parallax error, it's going to show up on target. Um, the further away that the target is, and the more your eye is out of the center, the more error you have. It also depends on um, how grossly out of alignment the parallax is from the reticle. So that increases the error. And it's also dependent on the design of the optic. So some optics are more sensitive to it than others. So there's a lot of variables in there and it's not a real clear answer of how much does it matter. Um, but the, the biggest thing is, you know, when we talk about parallax or rifle cant or getting the scope leveled uh, when you assemble the optic, you know, we talked about a weight budget. This is an error budget. And if you've got an error from parallax and you add an error from the rifle scope, rifle being canted when you take the shot and you add an error that, you know, you kind of threw the scope in the rings and just eyeballed it and it looked level enough. When you stack all those errors up, that may be the difference between a hit or a miss or an ethical shot and an and a unethical shot. Um, so when we look at parallax, we go, okay, well, it may not matter in and of itself, but it's error you can take out. So why don't you just do it? Um, and that's what we normally, you know, when we, when we teach classes and stuff like that, that's what we teach is, you know, get behind the gun, move your head around. So you're moving out of the optical center. If you see the reticle moving in relation to the target, your parallax is not dialed out. So you dial your parallax knob until the reticle and the target stay together. And, you know, you have no parallax at that point. Does the diopter, I thought in that video, the diopter plays some role in setting that, like setting it to begin with? Uh, set your diopter first. Okay. So once you get your diopter set, then you can, you know, diopter setting is, should be a one-time thing when you set your scope mm -hmm. up. Yep. yep. Um, after that, you'll check your parallax. Okay. So I think maybe in that video did it basically I couldn't get the parallax to work properly. So then I yeah, like, it must mean the diopter was not set correctly or is that unrelated? It would definitely play. It would give you some issues with when you set the diopter, it's, it's changing some things in the optic, uh, particularly uh -huh. magnification slightly. Um, okay. So you do need to get that set first okay. um, before you dial your parallax in. Okay. I'll go back and watch, rewatch that video and make sure I'm doing it right. Does, um, I, I was magnification range play a role in parallax. Does it, but the, the higher the range, cause you see like some older scopes that are, you know, um, you know, a, a three to nine that don't have parallax. Is that just a feature they didn't include in it? Or is it, um, because that, it's it's less affected by that smaller magnification range that it's maybe not needed. No, the magnification range itself doesn't give you an inherently parallax free scope or anything like that. Um, it's uh, my my assumption would be that they don't intend for you to shoot far enough where it really matters. Gotcha. So if they give you a parallax free distance of a hundred yards, it's insensitive enough between zero and a hundred and a hundred and whatever you're going to shoot at 300 yards 
mm-hmm. that you're not inducing enough error that they care. So they will gotcha. come that makes sense. from the factory at a preset. They'll come from the factory preset at a hundred yards uh, at whatever diopter setting they use, you know, at the factory. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. Which we, we do that with some of our scopes Our one to eights are preset at 125 meters. They have no parallax adjustment. And, you know, I shoot, I shoot one to eights out to seven, 800 yards with 223 on targets. Um, And it's, it's not an issue. They're just not sensitive enough that it matters. And I'm not shooting. I can I mean, see that within the group. Yeah. Yeah. I love that idea of like the budget, like the weight budget. And then this air, this tolerance budget, like one thing can be off a little bit without drastic consequences, but you start stacking these little airs or tolerances, um, being level, having parallax, not set, et cetera, et cetera. And that's when. Um, that all adds up to some real consequences. Just keeping that in mind as a theme is really important because I definitely see a lot of chatter of, you know, do I really need a level? Do I really need parallax? Do I really need this? Um, and of course, all those things, maybe if they're slightly off independently, one of them isn't going to be consequential, but you start stacking that, as you said, and that's where you really run into issues. So that's a very helpful way to think about this whole uh, topic, really. On the subject of leveling, when when you're setting the rifle scope up, do you recommend? Um, I guess you just put you know, put the level right on top of your top dial. Um, if if it's got a cap, do you want to screw it off and put it on the actual mechanism itself? How do you recommend? Or I had someone recommend to me, you know, hanging a string and having a plumb bob, and then you look through the scope and actually check level that way by lining up the your vertical post in the scope to the plumb bob for level. Yeah, this is another, this is a hotly, uh, hotly contested topic. Um, <laughs> so the, the kind of foolproof, it's going to be the best method is to hang a plumb bob. Um, that is the, you know, that is the best method for, for leveling a scope that has its own set of kind of logistics challenges. Um, so I'll, I'll say it's the best methodology, but at my house, you know, with the gun in a vice, you know, with, you know, a barrel clamp, I've got a gun in the vice. I can't point it at anything that I can hang a plumb bob off of. So it's not a real practical uh, solution for everybody. Um, the next best solution is actually the underside of the scope, that flat uh, spot underneath the saddle of the scope. Um, that's actually how we, we align those to the reticle itself. So that is perpendicular to the reticle. Yeah. There's a number of systems on the market that work off the bottom. Uh, we don't make any, but, um, like Arasaka defense is one. It's basically a wedge system that goes between your rail and the bottom of the scope. And you run that up until it makes contact and you tighten everything down. So that's a really, it's a really good way. It's fast and it's very easy to do even in the field. Um, and then the last way is all the, the bubble levels. So you talked about, you know, putting it on the cap versus on top of the dial. Really the best thing to do is get down to the lead screw. Um, so if you take the, if you take the dial off the top of that, you know, brass component, that lead screw, that's going to be the most accurate thing to level off of. Um, okay. 
if you're going to use that method. And I've used that method a bunch of times and checked it against a plumb bob and it's been very accurate for me. Um, There's but, some pretty cool systems out there where um, <clears throat> that they have a little mechanism you put in the action of your rifle that sticks out. So you're leveling your rifle and your optic at the same time. So there's some pretty cool kits out there that make it super easy to level things to. Um, I'll do the card trick on the bottom of that flat yeah. a lot. And it gets you very, very close. It's not precise, but it'll get you very, very close to. to yeah. The, the card so. trick. Uh, yeah. You take your business cards and you stack them up between the rail and the bottom of the scope. Uh, that's not a uh, pull them out one by one as you tighten your scope. Yeah, down. that's the bottom yes. of that uh, flat on the bottom of your scope, pretty level. <clears throat> yeah, not one hundred percent. Yeah, but it's very very close. If you have to do a field mount or something, and you have nothing else, that's a great way to do it. Yep, we've used you know any straight edge will work. You know if you have a a machinist's uh, rule or a, you know a set of calipers that have kind of a parallel edge, you can wedge those in between the bottom of the scope and the rail as well. So there's a lot of ways to do it. Some are better. You know, I think we kind of went through the hierarchy of quality in those methods. Um, but the important part is that you're doing something in that, in that hierarchy of quality instead of just throwing it in and eyeballing it because your, your eye is not a great judge for that. This is super broad, guys, but are there any other things that come to mind if I were to say, what are some common misconceptions whether that's about night force in general, about scopes in general, or maybe common things that you perhaps see customers kind of do wrong or, you know, could change. So again, kind of misconceptions, mistakes, et cetera, that maybe just it comes to top of mind. I know that's super broad. Yeah. So, I mean, the biggest one I think we've tackled at some is, but night, night force only makes scopes for the military. We hear that so many times and it's super frustrating um, you know, we, we make a lot of scopes for, for the civilian market. We make a lot of scopes for hunters. And, uh, so that's one, I think we're tackling that one, uh, through the whole podcast, but the other, the other main issue we see, uh, you talk to anybody from our customer service team, you go, Hey, what's the number one issue, uh, you guys see in customer service and it's, it's poor mounting. Um, we see it in customer service. We see it in repairs. Uh, you know, scope comes in because it has point of impact shift and you look at it and it's clearly slipped in the ranks. So whether it's taking your, you know, $2,000 night four scope and putting it in the cheapest ring set you could find, which we see that a surprising amount of times or not properly mounting the scope, either it's not leveled or they don't use torque. You know, you don't use a torque driver to, to torque the rings down. We see a lot of issues with mounting and it's a big, it's a big uh, place that you, know, you can see problems in the field is, you know, loose, loose yeah, space, get, loose rings, improper mounting. They get point of impact shift. And so, yeah, they'll send their optic in and <clears throat> we'll put it through the, put it through the test. And about 99% of the time when we get a point of impact scope in, it's, it's due to poor mounting. Yeah, that has to be a little bit of frustrating for sure. <laughs> a lot of time and, you know, for you guys, for the customer, for uh, everybody involved. And it's like, oh, this was actually a much simpler, quote unquote, fix than, um, than it had to go through all this, basically, this whole process. 
Yeah. And I mean, I listen to a lot of those conversations too, and they, they give, uh, you know, mounting one-on-one to whoever's calling in and, and seeing those issues prior to them sending the optic in. So, Hey, try to rule this out, check this, check that, um, maybe try a different ring set. Um, but yeah, we try to give them a little education in advance before they pull everything off of the gun and send it in. This is a very random question, but rings came up and this question come to mind. Do you guys feel that with good quality machined rings, not something, you know, uber cheap, do you feel that there's any benefit benefit or need to actually lap if you're using, call it precision ring? No. Nope. Um, We actually very clearly instruct people not to lap our rings because they usually make them oversized and cause themselves problems. Mm. Um, so I, you know, part of my career, I worked, I worked for, you know, custom rifle maker. Um, and we lapped a lot of rings when I was there, but with the quality of actions today, the quality of bases. Uh, and then the quality of the rings themselves, there's really no need to lap a good quality set of rings. Well, it's been great guys. Um, really appreciate the time and the knowledge. Uh, what would you have, like if folks are, have questions about night force, like what's just the best way to either stay in touch about future stuff or maybe reach out and ask some questions for you guys? Yeah. I mean, certainly you can engage with us on, on social media. Um, we're, we're active on Facebook and Instagram, um, but our customer service team is extremely knowledgeable. Uh, whether you own a night force, whether you're thinking of owning one, if you need help picking stuff out, um, they just love to talk about guns and scopes and hunting and all day long. And um, that's really the best place. If you have questions and want to talk to somebody call our customer service folks. Well, there's a lot we didn't hit guys. Uh, maybe we'll have to do this again and talk more about like reticles and reticle designs and first focal plane, second focal plane, uh, magnification ranges. Like we could keep talking all day, uh, but appreciate the time and what you guys shared today. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having us. And if you guys want to do another one in the future, we'd, we'd certainly be open to doing that. And uh, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks guys. Yeah. Take care guys. Thank you. Well, there you have it, guys. I hope you enjoyed that episode and learned not only about Night Force, but just about rifle scopes in general, and maybe some of the things that you want to look for in your next rifle scope. Again, if you have questions, whether that is for Steve and I or for the Night Force crew, let us know. Send an email to podcast at exomountgear.com or look for that link in the show description that says leave a message to leave us your audio message. As always, guys, we do appreciate the support. Thank you for tuning in. If you haven't yet, hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app so that you receive future episodes automatically, and we'll talk to you soon.